So please take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of First Peter. Our text for this morning is First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. And the title of the sermon this morning is A New Enduring Love. A new enduring love. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, I'll read the text. The Apostle Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, because you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. These are God's very words written for us. May he use his word this morning to make us more like his son. John Newton, the famous slave trader turned pastor who went on to write the hymn Amazing Grace, once wrote this. He said, The love of God, as manifested in Jesus Christ, is what I would wish to be the abiding object of my contemplation. Not merely to speculate upon it as a doctrine, but so to feel it, as to have my heart filled with its effects and transformed into its resemblance. That with this glorious exemplar in view, I may be animated to a spirit of benevolence love, and compassion to all who are around me. That my love may be primarily fixed upon him who has so loved me, Jesus, and then for his sake diffused to all his children and to all his creatures. I think that oftentimes we can take some of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith for granted. It's so easy to take for granted the forgiveness of the cross and the assurance that it brings. It's so easy to take for granted the victory of the resurrection And the hope that it guarantees. And likewise, it's so easy for us to take for granted the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And the enabling power that it has to transform us to love one another as God has intended. In Matthew 22, as Jesus is heading to the cross... And the religious leaders are incessantly trying to find an accusation against him. A Pharisee 
questions Jesus and asks him, what is the greatest commandment in the law? We know how Jesus responds. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your minds, with all your soul. And similarly, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's no secret that God's people are called to a life of love. It appears constantly, both throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. It's one of the most dominant themes in all of the Bible. To be a Christian is to be called to a life of love. And yet, I would argue that love is often one of the most misunderstood, misapplied, and even minimized doctrines among believers. Living in a society that is so careless about how it defines and practices love can so easily numb us as the church to a true biblical comprehension and practice of love. If we aren't cautious, one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith can easily become one of the most ambiguous. Satan would love for us to misunderstand love. What does it look like for us to love one another as God has intended? How do we define it biblically? And how do we mature in our practice of it? I hope to answer these questions this morning from our text. My aim this morning, my goal this morning is simple. It's to help you recognize and live in light of this unchanging truth. Christians are to be distinctly characterized by love now and forevermore. Christians are to be distinctly characterized by love now and forevermore. That is the point Peter is making in these verses. And to help us see this clearly, we can divide our passage into three sections. First, we'll consider the prerequisite for brotherly love. The prerequisite for brotherly love. Second, we'll consider the nature of brotherly love. The nature of brotherly love. And third, we'll look at the permanence of brotherly love. And to be clear, by brotherly love, I'm referring to the, the kind of love that we are to possess as believers towards other believers. So let's begin with point number one, the prerequisite for brotherly love. To grasp what Peter is calling us to in this text, we need to recognize that there is a prerequisite for the kind of love that Peter is commanding us to. What is that prerequisite? Well, to state it to you using one word, it's obedience. The prerequisite is obedience. Look with me at the text at verse 22. Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. 
Peter is exhorting us to practice sincere love towards other believers. It's a love that is without hypocrisy, a love that is free from false motives, a love that is devoid of any pretense. But this kind of love does not come naturally. It's not a love in Peter's mind that humans automatically possess. The curse has warped our ability to show this kind of love for one another. And so as a result of sin and the curse, there is a condition that must be met for you or me to possess this pure love that Peter is calling us to in this text. And that condition is obedience, specifically obedience to the truth, obedience to the gospel. And this obedience is so important because it is what creates change in our life. As a result of our belief in the gospel and the Spirit's work in our, in our, in our hearts, our lives are changed. We have a new identity with a different master. We have a new mind with a corrected understanding of the world. We have new desires that all aim to please God. And we have new behaviors which seek to represent and model Jesus. Peter explicitly acknowledges the change that happens from our obedience in this verse. He says, again, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. He observes how because these individuals have obeyed the gospel their souls are now purified. Not perfect, but purified. They've been set free from sin and its power, and they are to live a life of holiness, first towards God, as Peter has laid out in previous verses, and now what he's calling us to hear in this text, we are to live a life of holiness towards other believers. We're to love the church well. So when Peter calls for believers to sincerely love one another, there is a prerequisite to this love. It's a love that's only possible because of the power of the gospel. And furthermore, it's a love that conforms to God's character. A love that is defined in God's terms, not our own. And this brings us to an important distinction about the nature of sincere brotherly love. True, sincere brotherly love always coincides with righteousness. True love goes hand in hand with righteousness. Sincere love is derived from living in accordance with God's character. And we see this throughout the New Testament. This is why the Apostle John writes in his epistle, 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us love in truth. And likewise, Jesus himself in John 14.15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love, true love, conforms with righteousness. And this kind of distinct love is a, is, a, is a love that the world does not understand. 
Let me give you an example of even something that at times is hard for Christians to understand. Church discipline. The true purpose of church discipline is not to just call out somebody and their sin. The true purpose of church discipline is to lovingly call a person back into a right relationship with God. You love the person so much that you're willing to confront them on their sin and point them back to Jesus. There was an English pastor by the name of Robert Chapman who lived during the same time as Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon called him the, the holiest man I have ever known. And Pastor Robert Chapman had an occurrence in his church where an individual from his church was in unrepentant sin, and they had to church discipline the individual to the point of kicking him out from the church. And this man was very bitter and angry towards Robert Chapman and the church. He went out and he spread all kinds of lies about the pastor, said all kinds of false accusations, and the pastor was well aware of this. He knew that this man continued to rebel in his sin and said all kinds of things about him that were untrue. And one day, months later, Robert Chapman was walking down the street and he happened to see this man coming towards him. And as the two met on the street, the, the man who had been put in church discipline said nothing to Chapman, tried to avoid him, but Chapman, out of love, went up to this man. And he said to him, Dear brother, God loves you, Christ loves you, and I love you. Come back to the church. Come back to us. Come back to Christ. And that simple act of true love led this man to repentance and to coming back to the church and being in right relationship with Chapman and all the believers. That's love. That's the kind of love that Peter is depicting here. True love for us as believers is a distinct love from what the world defines as love. Our love is is Godward. It flows from a genuine desire to see others live as God has intended. Crossroads, this is what the gospel has done for us. The gospel, through faith, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, has transformed us so that we can love as God has always designed. And if we aren't careful, we can approach the gospel in a very selfish, self-oriented manner. We'd love to hone in on justification and reconciliation and redemption that we have through Christ. And we ought to, because this is what the gospel has accomplished. However, as I think about my own life in the church, I think that we frequently fail to meditate upon how the gospel not only changes our relationship with God, but simultaneously a relationship with others. The gospel changes the way that we are called 
to treat people, and to interact with others. And God is greatly concerned with the way we treat others. I mean, just think about the Ten Commandments. More than half of the Ten Commandments don't concern, ultimately, our relationship with us and God, but it concerns our relationship with others. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Do not covet. These are all relational concerns. God is deeply concerned with how we treat his fellow image bearers. And he's especially concerned with how we treat other believers. And if I'm honest, and if we're honest, I think that in the church today, we we tolerate far too much relational sins. We gossip about another believer without a second thought. We talk down about someone in our Bible study to make ourselves appear better. We grow bitter towards another church member because they have what we want. We use people in the church for selfish purposes and gain. Where We fail to show hospitality and kindness towards another believer simply because they're different from us or they don't meet our criteria of what we're looking for in a friend. Crossroads, this is not living in light of the gospel. These relational sins that we so easily tolerate do not conform to loving in the way in which God has called us to. We must not tolerate these sins in our lives. We have been transformed by our obedience to the truth. And we are to be distinctly characterized by love for one another now and forevermore. Continuing on in the text, Peter reiterates this point and even expands upon it as we continue on in these verses. In the end of verse 22, we see the nature of brotherly love, our second point, the nature of brotherly love. Peter writes, starting at the beginning of the verse, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Here it is. Here's the nature of brotherly love, the commandment. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Again, we notice that true love stems from a pure heart, a heart that has been cleansed and forgiven a heart that is now devoted to righteous living. Our love cannot be tainted with hypocrisy. But the most important element in this commandment is an adjective. The Greek word, ektenos. Ektenos. Peter says, love one another with an ektenos kind of love. What does Peter mean when he uses this adjective, Ectanos. Well, our English Bibles translate the word in a variety of ways. The NIV, the NLT says, love one another deeply. The ESV and the Net Bible say, love one another earnestly. Christian Standard Bible says, love one another constantly. 
And the NASB and the LSB say, love one another fervently. Now, none of these, none of these translations misrepresent the Greek word ektenos. But I don't think that any of them accurately capture what Peter has in mind. It's a difficult word to concisely convey in the English language. In the Greek, ektenos is a word picture. The literal idea here is of a a taut or a stretched muscle that has gone through strenuous and sustained effort. Those adjectives, strenuous and sustained, captures well the idea of the kind of love that Peter is calling us to hear. By using the word ektenos, Peter is not only describing and depicting the intensity of our love, but also the duration of our love. It is to be a strenuous, sacrificial love, but it's also to be a sustaining and enduring love. Perhaps the way to illustrate this is uh, in high school, for whatever reason, because I lacked good judgment, I guess, in high school, I decided to run both track and cross country. And at the risk of offending some of you, uh, I would say that cross country is a little bit more difficult than running track, just from my experience. Uh, track, you know, you run around the course a couple times, and it's definitely strenuous effort. I mean, I'm breaking a sweat. It's hard work. My heart hurts. I'm still asking, why am I doing this? I don't know why I signed up for this sport. It's not a very uh, enjoyable activity. But cross country is, I would argue, something altogether different. I remember going from track to cross country my first year, and I show up, and my coach says, okay, today we're going to go run for a nine-mile run. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Nine miles? I'm just used to running around the track once or twice. This is insane. And then there's some of you who run marathons. Just crazy. There's a far difference between a track runner who does use a great amount of energy, but in a very short time, as compared to a long-distance runner. Uh, A long-distance runner, I mean, you are using strenuous and sustained effort over a long period of time. I mean, for a a marathon, 26 miles, and you're running as fast and as hard as you can for a long time. That, That idea of the runner in a marathon using effort over a long, sustained period of time, that's that's the kind of love that Peter has in mind here. It's not just a short burst of intense love, but it's a sustained, enduring love. We are to love sacrificially, but we are to love sacrificially all throughout our lives. So perhaps a a better translation here is the idea that we are to love one another with constant fervor. Constant fervor. That's the idea here by ektenos love. And you guys, we we need to only look at the verses that precede us to see the greatest demonstration of this love. Look with me at 1 Peter 1 verse 18. Peter writes, You, believer, were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the greatest demonstration of Actanos love. Jesus himself, his ministry here on the earth, his willingness to go to the cross on our behalf and take upon himself the wrath of God. This is love put on display. And it is that kind of strenuous and sustained love, believers, that we are to imitate and show towards one another. I hope all of us, like John Newton, seek each day to meditate and gaze upon the love of Christ and to consider what he has done for us, but that as a result that it would change us, that it would transform us, and that it would propult us into a life of love, not only for God, but for others. Do you commit yourself to loving your brothers and sisters in Christ in this way, with an ectanos kind of love? I want to make a a general observation. I don't have anyone in particular in mind, but as I think about even my own time in college, and as a young adult, college, if you're not careful, can be some of the most selfish years of your life, where you just become so consumed with your own world and your own plans and your own desires. And there's nothing wrong with thinking about that. That's what college is designed for. You're preparing for the rest of your life. But don't be blinded by that to miss the opportunities that you have right now, today, to love your brothers and sisters in Christ well. If you aren't intentionally and diligently doing that now, You're not going to do do that when you get married, go into a career. The time to love with this kind of love, Crossroads, is today. It's every day. We are privileged to have the opportunity to love one another in such a sacrificial way. And this kind of love, as hard as it sounds, and we're never going to be perfect in it, in this side of heaven... It isn't burdensome. It isn't burdensome. Because you see, the beauty of this kind of love is its reciprocity. It's a, yes, a strenuous and sustained love on your part, but it's a reciprocal love. Because as you lay down your own life to love your brothers and sisters in Christ well, they are to do the same to you. What Peter is calling all of us here to is a reciprocal, mutually beneficial love. We are crossroads to be distinctly characterized by love for one another now and forevermore. It's appropriate to ask why? Why are we to love one another in such a way? What's the cause for? such a love? Well, Peter anticipates that question and is going to answer it for us 
in verses 23 through 25. And that brings us to our third point, the permanence of brotherly love. The permanence of brotherly love. Look again with me at the text. Verse 23, why are we to love one another with this ectanos love? Verse 23, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So what's the the reason for this strenuous, sustaining, mutual love? The reason that Christians are to love one another continually and sacrificially is because we have been born again. We have been born again. We have a new nature. And because of this new nature, we can now live in right relationship with one another. But the reason we are called to love one another with such drastic measure goes beyond just our new nature. That's the foundation. But but Peter expands his reasoning here. There's a, a particular quality or aspect of our new nature that demands such love. And that quality is the permanence of the new birth. The permanence of the new birth. Look with me again at the text. Peter observes how we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed. Seed represents the the source of all life, biblically. All creation begins with seed. Humans come from seed, animals come from seed, plants, all derived from a seed, biblically. But because of the curse, everything in the natural world perishes. Plants don't live forever, animals die, and humans eventually die as well. Death swallows up all creation. It's all perishable. But there's a stark contrast here between that and our new nature. Peter says that is imperishable. Imperishable. Peter has used this language already back in verse 4 of chapter 1 to depict the nature of our inheritance. Our inheritance, Peter says, as believers is imperishable. It will never decay. It will never pass away. It will never fade away. Our inheritance as believers is forever. And likewise, Peter is saying our new nature is one which will never decay or never pass away. Our new identity as God's people will, with transformed hearts will never pass away. Death cannot reverse it. Death has no power over it. Why is that the case? Why is death not able to reverse it? Why does death have no power over it? Well, to answer that question, we have to consider the source of our new birth. The source And Peter tells us that at the end of verse 23, he says, We have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. How? How did this new birth come about? Here's the source. Through the living and abiding word of God. In this case, the message of the gospel, as Peter identifies at the end of verse 25, 
And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So we have been born again to an imperishable nature through the work of the gospel, through the living and abiding word of God. God's word is a message that through the gospel we have heard. God has opened our eyes to its truth. And we have been made new by God's merciful power through the gospel. And the effect that the word has on us is permanent. It will never perish. And Peter reiterates this truth by citing Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 and 8, in verse 24. He says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. God's word remains forever. All creation will eventually pass away, but God's word will not. What God's word produces, what it promises, what it brings to pass will never perish. And we have been brought into our new nature by his word. And at this point, I think it's necessary for us to ask a a glaring question. What does this have to do with love? Why does Peter make this interesting connection? It's pretty unique in the New Testament between our new birth and love. What does our permanent nature as people of the new covenant have to do with our love for one another? I think the point that Peter is making is everything. It has everything to do with the love that we are called to have. The theologian Augustine described heaven as a community of love. A community of love. In the new heaven and the new earth, love will characterize our lives. We will perfectly love God and we will perfectly love one another forever. We will spend all our days in unbroken, undistracted love. No sin, no curse, no hypocrisy, no arrogance, no unkind words, no jealousy, no lies, no brokenness. The new nature that we now possess will be perfected. And as a result, our love will be perfected. And although we are not yet perfect, here's the key, here's the point, we already possess that new nature. We are already citizens of the new heaven and the new earth, exiles awaiting our permanent home in the new heaven, in the new earth. And as exiles, we are to live now, today, as citizens of the new heaven and the new earth. We strive to love one another as we will in the new heaven, in the new earth, where our love will be perfected. We are no longer to have relationships as we have in the past. Now, as believers, the way we treat other people and the sacrificial love that we have for one another is to be different. The love that we have for one another now is to be a foretaste of the love we will experience in heaven. 
We're not yet perfect. Our love has not yet been perfected. But we have the new nature already today as believers. And we are to live in light of that new nature. Not the old self, not the old way, not the old ways in which we would treat people. That's no longer to characterize us. And I think that's exactly why Peter says in the very next verse, it's not the most helpful chapter division. In chapter 2, verse 1, that's why coming out of this text, Peter says, So put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, and all slander. Those vices, those sins, no longer define or characterize who we are. They're not fitting for the new nature that we now possess. And thinking about this, and thinking in my own life, I wonder if there are other people, even in this room, other believers that you're not loving well. I don't have to think long and hard even on this past week to think about people I have not loved well. This is a a truth that needs to constantly be in our minds. That we are to be distinctly characterized by love for one another now and forevermore. Again, we all know it. We're not perfect at this. But we are striving to be more and more like Christ each day in the way that we love other people. And we need to be honest with ourselves, take inventory of ourselves. What relationships are we not loving other people well? There is a a small town in eastern Pennsylvania called Rosetto that became quite famous in the late 1950s and early 1960s. There was a cardiovascular research physician, a doctor by the name of Dr. Stuart Wolf, who visited one summer. And as he was spending time with the people, he stumbled upon a pretty amazing discovery. Nobody in Rosetto, Pennsylvania, under the age of 65, was suffering from heart disease. And very few people over 65 died as a result of of heart disease. Now, we have to understand that today in the United States, heart disease is the leading cause of death. Every year, approximately 650,000 Americans die from heart disease. To be able to find a, a town today that isn't affected by heart disease would be noteworthy. But to find one in the 1950s and early 60s was virtually impossible. They didn't have all of the medical technology and pharmaceutical advancements that we do now. Heart disease was an epidemic in the 1950s. The death rate was 60% higher then than it is today. Every town was affected by heart disease. Every town except Rosetto, 
Pennsylvania. And Dr. Wolf, being a, a research physician, sought to find out why was that the case. So we put together a research team, and for the next few years, they studied the people of Rosetto, Pennsylvania. And their first suspicion was diet. Maybe they just ate healthier than the rest of America. Uh, but it actually, it was just the opposite. They cooked their food with lard instead of olive oil and had a diet that consisted mainly of high-fat foods. Clearly, it's not diet. Uh, what about exercise? Uh, definitely not. There are one in there in Pennsylvania. It's freezing cold. I can say that. I'm from Michigan. I do not miss that weather at all. Nobody's spending a ton of time outside exercising, and definitely not in Rosetto. Because of their diet, many of the people struggled with obesity, and to make matters worse, many of the residents were heavy smokers. Well, what about genetics? Maybe their genes somehow protected them from heart disease. Once again, this was not the answer. Dr. Wolf did the hard work of looking into their family history, and essentially all of their nearest kin greatly suffered from heart disease. They even looked into the location. Maybe somehow Rosetto, Pennsylvania is protected from the elements and they don't have heart disease because of their geographical location. Again, that was not the case. The two nearest towns, the, the death rate from heart disease was three times higher than it was in the rest of the United States. So what was it? What made these people so different? Well, the more the time passed, Dr. Wolf came to, to realize something. And he couldn't prove it empirically by science, but he was convinced of this. Their good health had nothing to do with diet, exercise, or gene, genetics. It had to do with the people themselves. Dr. Wolf observed how everyone was involved in each other's lives. Almost every night, the neighborhood was full of chatter as people filled each other's backyards and homes. People almost never walked by each other on the streets. They always stopped by and talked to someone. Families were multi-generational. It wasn't uncommon for three generations of one family to live under the same roof. There's 22 different civil organizations uh, in, the, in the town. The people were just constantly in each other's lives. There was virtually no crime, and there was no noticeable difference between the poor and the wealthy. The wealthy didn't flaunt their success or their money, but instead they used their influence and their resources to help those in need. Dr. Rosetta, or excuse me, Dr. Wolf came to determine that what made Rosetto, Pennsylvania, so different from the rest of the country was their love for one another. He, he called it a community of love. And he went on to publish and, and write about this town, and it's still in existence to this day, seen as an extraordinary example of love in the United States. That kind of, of love ought not to be extraordinary in the church. It ought to be the ordinary kind of love that we practice every day. 
towards other believers. It ought to be the characteristic of our lives. We as the church, we as crossroads, live in order to love others sacrificially, with joy. We love with great effort and great endurance. We are to be distinctly characterized, crossroads, by love for one another now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that this calling is a a high calling, one that is not easy to live out. But God, we thank you for your love towards us. We thank you for the sacrificial love that Christ has demonstrated towards all of us that has brought us into your family. And now, God, I pray that we would strive to live lives of sacrificial love towards one another. That the world may be surprised by our love, but for us as the church, that this would simply be ordinary, everyday Christian life. God, help us to love as Jesus loved us. Help us to see others as you see them. Help us to recognize the opportunities that we have, even today, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ well. We ask for your help in this. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.